0: through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is the very word of God.
1: All right, as we begin our study of the book of Romans together, uh, I always think it might be instructive for you to at least know some of the reasons why we pick uh, the books that we pick to preach from the Bible. Um, In other words, why Romans? Why now? On the one hand, that may seem completely irrelevant You can preach any text, as long as it's in the Bible. So close your eyes, open it, pick one. Okay, we can do that. Uh, On the other hand, there are motivations. There are reasons. There are hopes that that I have, that the elders have, for why we select certain books at certain times to preach. So uh, I, I could actually do a whole sermon here of sort of what's behind and motivating this, but perhaps instead I will just tell you uh, a personal story um, from my life the last week. In the last week, I made two different trips to Kansas City and back within a week. So that's a lot, I think, a lot of traveling. Um, First, we went for a planned trip um, for a wedding, someone in my extended family getting married. And uh, anytime you go to a wedding, um, it's an interesting situation because you have um, the people that you know there, especially all of us know the ones getting married, or at least one of them, It was my niece that was getting married, and so lots of memories of her growing up over the years. Um, But then there's always a bunch of strangers, and especially during the wedding reception, it sort of creates a bit of a, for some of us, an awkward moment, especially when the dance floor opens up and you're a pastor and you have no rhythm at all. It's like the most awkward thing in the world. And um, I've tried taking dance lessons. I'm terrible. I can't do it. Eddie has tried to help me to no avail. Like, it's just awkward. And so, like, what do you do at a wedding, especially at a wedding reception? uh, There's a lot of shame (laughs) that can happen in those moments. The day before we left on this trip, I had two best friends in high school, and uh, one of my friends died the day before we left. Same age as me. And so we got news while we were up there that the the funeral would be on Thursday. And so we were coming back on Monday, um, came home for a day, and then I turned around and drove back. uh, Almost to the same place that we had been the week before for a funeral.
0: A lot of people ask me how, that knew
1: about this, how I was doing, and I have all sorts of emotions about it, of course. Um, but you walk into a funeral, and it's also a bit awkward. People that you know, for me, people from a long time ago that I hadn't seen in years, decades. Also, lots of people that I don't know who were relatives, friends of my friend since high school. And how, how do you act? How do you, what do you say to a brother and a sister who've lost their sibling? a mom and dad who have to bury their child, to a wife who's now a widow, to kids who don't have a dad, my age. Of course, none of these things were in my mind as we picked the book of Romans, but I I say this because Romans one sixteen we just heard read, you very familiar with it, is the thesis of the book of Romans, many people would say. It, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. And I want to tell you that in the midst of the greatest joys of life, like a wedding, and in the deepest moments of grief,
0: the gospel
1: is if we're not ashamed of it. The gospel gives us something to say or not say, depending on the situation. The gospel gives us a power for the great joys of life, the great sorrows of life, and everything in between. Brothers and sisters, I'm simply saying this. The reason I'm excited about jumping into the book of Romans, and some of this I'll say in a moment too, is because there's a power in the gospel that's being expounded for us in this great letter in our Bibles that I want you to have and I want to have. A a power to speak light and life a power to share in joys, even if you can't dance <laughs> at a wedding. The gospel gives us this kind of power to enter into the joy and to enter into grief. And in this congregation, we got all of that. We've got people who are filled with joy right now. Incredible things are happening in their life, and we... Have the power of the gospel to say, there's a reason we get to celebrate with you. We can enter into this joy. And the gospel is the power of God for salvation when you're at the funeral. Are you with me? I I want us to grab hold of, all of us, listen, listen to me, all of us, I want us to grab hold of the power of God given to us in the gospel and move boldly forward into whatever is ahead of us. I want that for all of us. I want it for all of you. So you're here this morning. I hope you hear this, no matter who you are, no matter how involved you are in the church or how connected you think you are, whatever. If you're a part of this congregation some way, you're here today, so you are, I want us, through our study of Romans, to say with Paul, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And of course, we need to know, how can Paul say that? So that's what I'm here to do this morning, is I'm here to help us get a starting point um, because we got 40 weeks planned in Romans, so it's going to take a while for us to Try to dig into this a little bit deeper. But this morning, I want us to get a running start at it. Why is is it true for Paul that he can say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel? Does he give us any hints right here in these first 17 verses? I think he does. Not just in verses 16 and 17, but from verses 1 to 17, he speaks to us, he writes to us about first the goal of the gospel... Second, the enjoyment of the gospel. And then third, the promise of the gospel. If we know the goal of the gospel and keep it clear, if we can see how the gospel brings us into incredible joy and the sharing of joy, and if we can keep before us what it is the gospel actually promises, then we won't be ashamed of it either. You won't. You you don't have to have a theological degree. You don't have to know as much of the Bible as somebody else here in this congregation. If you can keep in front of you the goal of the gospel, the enjoyment of the gospel, and its promise, you won't be ashamed of the gospel either. So let's take a look. First, the Apostle Paul writes to the Romans in order to, To see the goal of the gospel and to see it realized. What is the goal of the gospel? We're told right here in verse 4. Paul says it is to bring about the obedience of faith. And we're going to get to that in just a moment. But that's the goal of the gospel, the obedience of faith. So let's let's see how he gets there. First, the author of the letter, of course, is Paul. We know this. He identifies himself in verse 1. He also calls himself by three other identities. He says he is a servant of Christ Jesus. He has been called to be an apostle and that he has been set apart for the gospel of God. Now he'll come back to this apostolic designation in verse 5, but it's the mention of the gospel which brings elaboration in verses 2, 3, and 4. So when Paul says that he has been set apart for the gospel, he is saying that the gospel is is what his life is entirely devoted to. Now, if you think of Paul as a missionary or a pastor, that would make sense. If you think of him as an apostle holding some ecclesial office, you would understand his point. But I'm guessing that the apostle Paul would want every Christian to see their life's work in this way. Regardless of vocation or any leadership role that they may hold in the church, he wants all of us to say, I have been set apart. My entire life is devoted to, is all about the gospel of Jesus. So I want I just want to say to you here that in the last about year and a half or so in my life, I, I find myself in this place where I've been humbled a bit to recognize that when I speak about the gospel, I have still so much more to learn. Sometimes we can walk around and, and carry about a bit of a, of a pride in our hearts that, well, we, we are a gospel-centered church. We get it. We know the gospel. But there is still so much more to learn. The Lord in his grace has, especially through sabbatical, through what he has shown me on union with Christ that we're going to find often throughout the book of Romans, and the kingdom of God in particular, I I feel like new horizons are opening up to me. And I've been doing this for a little while now, and I'm just excited about new things to learn about the gospel. I want you to feel that way. I want you, no matter what vocation you have or no matter how much you think you know or know you don't know about the Bible, to say, my entire life is devoted to this good news. Everything about my life is devoted to this good news. Because once you start to see the breadth of the gospel, what it promises and what it delivers, everything else that you might do in life could only be some supporting element to gospel devotion. Because the gospel of God, Paul says in verse 2, is that which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. In other words, the gospel is not some new thing, but that which brings the old promise, the Old Testament Scriptures, to fulfillment. And yet the most important thing that we can say about the gospel is found at the beginning of verse 3. The gospel is concerning his son his name is emphatically stated at the end of verse 4 jesus christ our lord the gospel centers on jesus the son of god the gospel is about jesus it's all about jesus but what about jesus the fact of his incarnation is spelled out in verse 3 but the important aspect to be noted there is that this jesus was a descendant from david This was the expectation for anyone who could rightly claim to be Israel's Messiah. If he is the fulfillment of all that's promised in the Old Testament, if he is the center of the gospel focus, then this Jesus must be Israel's true Messiah. Indeed, he is descended from David. And yet what matters most about Jesus is that the fact is the fact that according to verse four, he was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. Now Paul is going to refer to the resurrection of Jesus several times throughout this letter. As one commentator observes, squeeze this letter at any point and resurrection spills out. Hold it up to the light and you can see Easter sparkling all the way through. Here we find in verse 4, Paul's stressing resurrection as the incontrovertible proof that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. Now, to follow Paul's logic, you should not hear the phrase here in verse 4, Son of God, and think that what Paul is trying to say is that the resurrection proves the deity of Jesus. Most people are probably kind of geared to think that way. When you see the phrase Son of God, you think Jesus is God in the flesh. But that is not... What the phrase here refers to. It refers to instead Jesus' identification, again, as Israel's long-awaited Messiah. We must remember that whatever messianic claim Jesus might have made for himself, it all seemed a sham on Good Friday. A dead Messiah is a failed Messiah. But by his resurrection from the dead, this Jesus who's already been called God's son, his son, but then declared to be the son of God, this Jesus was proven to truly be the son of God in power. That is, the one who has now taken on an even more powerful position in relation to the world. So many people today struggle over Christianity because of its claims of exclusivity, right? You've heard this. But here's the thing. The claim that we're making about Jesus is not that he is a way to heaven, but that he is the one true sovereign Lord of all creation, all universe, and is the hope of the entire world. And it's either true or it's not true. It's either true or it's not true. And The entire truthfulness of the gospel depends, depends entirely on this reality, the resurrection from the dead. Because, as Paul writes elsewhere, if Jesus has not been raised from the dead, here's what he says, your faith is in vain, you are still in your sins. Notice he didn't say, if Jesus didn't die on the cross, you are still in your sins. He said, if Jesus hasn't been raised, you are still in your sins. Why is that? We're going to find out throughout the book of Romans, but suffice it here to say this because of what the gospel's promise is, we'll come back to it in a moment. The gospel's promise is the reason this is true. So, if Jesus was not raised from the dead, never to die again, this is what we believe that is, raised immortal, not just resuscitated, he didn't just come back to life and then eventually died again, like so many others in the Bible. That would be amazing enough, but we're claiming something different. This Jesus entered into death, came through on the other side. In other words, he defeated it. He was raised in a body that couldn't die anymore. My daughter and I were debating yesterday if Jesus uh, had, had been raised and then somebody shot him with a gun. What would have happened? You can think about it. But I'll tell you this, he wouldn't have died. He was now in a body that had defeated death. Are you with me? That's what we believe. This is what we believe. And if it's not true, then Jesus and the gospel is not good news. It offers you no hope. We just sang a song. I wrote it down. Um, In the song, we said, how unwavering our hope, right? Christ in power resurrected as we will be when he comes. Now that is what we believe, brothers and sisters. That's the promise we're holding on to, but I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm, that's the promise. That's the last point. Stick with it then. Okay. But, but what if, I'm just asking you, what if, skeptic, he really did raise from the dead? As he said he would, as his disciples said he did, and as no one was ever able to debunk. Bring the body of Jesus and Christianity is over. The the Roman government could have ended this chaos by just presenting a body. So what if it's true? If it's true, if it's true, then uh, let's just be honest. Something strange has happened. Something strange otherworldly has just taken place. Jesus now, if it's true, Jesus has opened up to us a brand new world, Uh, something that we could only call a new creation. There now exists, think of it, think of it, there now exists an, an immortal human being. Not somebody who dies and lives forever in a disembodied state, but somebody who is in a body and cannot die. And if Jesus has been raised out of the realm of the dead ones, which is how verse 4 literally reads, he was raised in power from the dead ones then what that means, what we just sang about, is he possesses a power that demands our attention because in his resurrected life, we have hope that we too will be raised from the dead. So when Paul says that it is through Jesus that he has received grace and apostleship, I know your Bible says we, but this is what's known as a writer's plural. He's actually just talking about himself. You do that sometimes. We think, you just mean you, (laughs) it's weird when we do that, but we still do that. That's what Paul's doing. He means he has received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. Here's what he's saying. He's saying that the way that he carries out his life's devotion to the gospel is by seeking to bring people into this obedience of faith. Now, to obey the gospel is simply to believe it. And since the gospel is about Jesus, then the obedience of faith is believe the gospel about Jesus. The goal is not to believe, by the way, let me just make this plain. The goal is not to believe my version of Jesus or anyone else's version of Jesus, but to believe Jesus, the real son of God, not what you think about Jesus, but who Jesus really is. The obedience of faith is not about getting you to do what I think you should do or getting you to do what somebody else thinks you. That's not what we're about here. We're about the gospel concerning Jesus. And the whole devotion of our lives is that we might help one another believe this Jesus as he really is. The response that the gospel of God, the response the gospel of God about his son requires is simply to believe in Jesus, not as a single act, but as a continuing and deepening lifelong commitment. Because if the gospel is true, then the power that is encapsulated in the confession, Jesus is Lord, has profound implications for every reality and experience of life, from the wedding reception to the graveside. Are you with me? Okay, so now Paul's saying... I believe this is true, which is why he speaks next about his great desire to meet these Christians in Rome and reap a harvest of faith among them. He's not ashamed of the gospel because he knows the goal, but also he's not ashamed of the gospel because he enjoys the gospel. He enjoys the gospel. Now, Pastor Darrell mentioned last week. That when you come to the book of Romans, which is a book as doctrinally rich as you will find in the Bible, you probably know that. You shouldn't come to Romans and think that Paul sat down one day and says, you know, I need to write out my systematic theology. I I just need to put it all in writing because, you know, these Christians are coming after me and they need to they need to know my great mind about the gospel. He could have done that. That's not what led to the book of Romans. Romans is a letter to a community of Christians in a certain place. And and, and like all other letters, there's an occasion or a purpose for the letter that motivated its composition. And in verses 8 to 15, the apostle emphasizes again and again how much he wanted to come to Rome and meet the believers there. So this is a, a, a group of Christians that he has not yet met. He didn't plant the church there. He doesn't know these believers. But what we know about these Christians in Rome is that it was a composite of Jews and Gentiles. And this created all sorts of practical problems in the early church. I know that this is difficult for us to grasp some 2,000 years later. But the question in the first century that was always in the air was just how Jewish should Christians be? After all, we just said and we believe that Jesus himself was a Jew and was accepted as the long-awaited Jewish Messiah, the one who brought Israel into the promised kingdom of God. This is a thoroughly Jewish promise and hope. So you can't just set that ex- aside. You can't just ignore the Jewishness of Christianity as if Christianity is a new religion, Right? It's the fulfillment of Old Testament promise. So remember what we saw in verse 2. The gospel is that which God promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy, that is Old Testament scriptures. So if Christianity does not do away with Judaism, but is meant rather to be the fulfillment of of it, then the question that's always running behind the scenes in the New Testament, and sometimes rather front and center, is this question of who are the true people of God and how are they to be identified? question brought a lot of tension, as you can imagine, between Jewish and Gentile Christians. Paul believed that the gospel came with answers not only to the question of how one might be reconciled to God, but listen, but also how might people be reconciled to one another. Now that's pretty practical. Not only for the believers in Rome, but for you and me. So in verse 11, Paul states clearly one of his primary motivations for wanting to come to Rome. He says, I long to see you. Look what he says, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. Now, (laughs) let me help us for a moment. He does not mean that he possesses some supernatural power to perform signs and wonders, and he wants to come, lay hands on them so that they can start doing that as well. It's not what Paul means when he writes these words. How do I know? The next verse. In the next verse, Paul seeks to correct that misunderstanding and bring clarity to what he has in mind when he says, I want to come and impart to you some spiritual gift. Like, if I said that to you, you might look at me like, what's about to happen, right? (laughs) I'm about to impart to you a spiritual gift. You're you're kind of, you're interested. But But here's what Paul actually means by it. Here's what he means by it. His hope, look at verse 12, was that there would be a mutual encouragement between him and the believers in Rome. He wanted to share something with them, but he also expected to receive something from them. This is because they shared a common faith. Paul understood that since they shared the common faith, from this one faith would come, listen, various perspectives. That if shared with one another, would be the sharing of a gift from the Holy Spirit himself. We're talking about the enjoyment of the gospel. The result of that sharing would be mutual edification. This gift that Paul has in mind, a spiritual gift, would not be a one-way street. The Apostle. To you ordinary believers. No, no. This, because it is a spiritual gift, runs both ways. Now this is amazing. Crosstown. What if we believed our Bibles? Wouldn't that be awesome? What if we believed that the same thing happens or should happen among us? What if we believed... Listen, I'm, I'm, I'm begging you, each one of you, each one of you right now. What if we believed that because we possess a common faith, then we also possess various gifts that we can share with one another. And that ought to be shared with one another because the result of sharing this kind of gift would be the strengthening of faith in the gospel of Jesus. So, if you feel weak in faith, just that's—I'm asking you—think to think for a moment. Is that you? Do you do you think I, I'm I'm pretty weak in this Christian faith thing? If if that's how you feel, then let me tell you what you need. You need your brothers and sisters in the church. Desperately need them. But here's the thing: it just might be. That God intends not only to strengthen you by your brothers and sisters, but, catch this, he intends to strengthen your brothers and sisters by your own weak faith as well. If the apostle can say, I want to come and share with you a, a, a spiritual gift, and then ha- hurry on to say to people who he hadn't even yet met, wait, I don't just mean I'm going to share with you a spiritual gift, but I can't wait to get a spiritual gift back from your perspective in the faith, then this creates an amazing possibility for what can happen in any local church. Why did Paul want to come to Rome? Verse 13, he says it this way in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. And then in verse 14, he speaks of being under obligation to everyone. That is to Greek speaking people and to non-Greek speaking people, to the upper and lower classes, to the wise and to the foolish. The obligation that he speaks of here comes from, of course, from the fact that in verse 1, he says he was called to be an apostle, but it is not Mere duty that drives him. He says in verse 15, for this reason, I am eager, eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. Who is the ones he's writing to? The believers in the church. And he wants to evangelize them. He wants a harvest among the believers. This is amazing. Preaching the gospel then involves much more than aiming at initial conversion of the unconvinced. If the gospel is about Jesus reigning as Lord over the kingdom of God that has already been inaugurated, then the gospel impacts literally every single aspect of your life. So do you see how the gospel impacts every area of your life? And I mean every area of your life. Do you see it? No, you can't. Let me answer the question. You actually can't, which is the reason you need the encouragement, the strengthening, the sharing of your fellow Christians' faith. So when we fellowship together, what we ought to be aiming for is proclaiming the gospel to one another. That's what we should be aiming for. I mean, what else do you want to get from our time together? I could tell you what you can expect. Conflict, frustration, disappointment, your feelings hurt. So that's fun. You can laugh. That's, I'm just trying to lighten the mood. A little. No, actually, here's what you can expect. If we are not ashamed of the gospel, if we keep its goal in mind, that is, I just want to believe Jesus. That's all I want. And if we keep in mind that what God intends to do in sharing and encouraging one another to believe in Jesus in every area of our lives, then what comes from that is nothing less than like reaping a harvest, like a bumper crop of goodness and strength that comes from the encouragement that's found in the gospel. I had an opportunity on my first trip to speak to one of my um, family members who is a widow and uh, is struggling lost her husband 3 years ago and she told me she said I I prayed I asked the Lord if he would give me a sign that I would see my husband one day she's a christian and then she told me she had a dream and when she woke up from this dream she felt worse not better. And I could see that she was really troubled by this. What do you say? What would you say? The gospel gives us the opportunity to encourage one another in such a way that it seemed, at least to me, that she was incredibly encouraged by gospel truth that I was able to share with her. And you know what? I walked out of there this was a family member that I have not actually, that I don't even know that well, extended family member. And I left saying, this was amazing. Uh, we stayed with her uh, for two nights. Uh, it was sort of awkward. Again, like, I don't even know this extended family member that well, so I'm going to stay with them. And uh, Mindy said, we just need to do it. And my wife was right again. was so encouraged. Like, this was incredible that I had this conversation. Strengthening of faith. You need it, brothers and sisters, and so do I. Now, let me hurry. Let me hurry. The gospel promise. The preaching of the gospel is what Paul has in mind when he pens the theme of Romans in verses 16 to 17. The gospel has as its goal, we saw first, the obedience of faith, and it's meant to be enjoyed, a harvest of faith. And all of this comes about because the gospel carries with it the promise, a great promise. The righteousness of God by faith. That's what the gospel promises. The righteousness of God by faith. So we've got some theological terms already at work here. If you're going to do this, if we're going to understand the book of Romans, you're going to have to, we're going to have to get our, our definitions. We're going to have to be familiar with these words. We're not going to change them. We're not going to use different terminology. Learn them. And Study them. So we've got the gospel, we've got righteousness, and we've got faith. So three to start out with. Paul says, verse 16, he is not ashamed of the gospel. And verse 16 comes right after verse 15. That's profound, but that's important, right? Because look what he says. What he's not ashamed of is not the gospel as some sort of idea. What he's not ashamed of is proclaiming it. He's not afraid to, he's not ashamed to speak it to the believers. He's eager to do so, even if he's under obligation, even if he knows he's been called to do it. And this is his life's work. It doesn't matter. He loves this. After all, Paul says, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Now, we can say, and you undoubtedly would say, that God is powerful. But if you want to see his power, then you should get busy proclaiming the gospel. Start with your brothers and sisters. I don't know what to say. Well, we already, the gospel is about Jesus. So start talking about Jesus. Start asking what would happen if in his resurrected body they shot him. (laughs) Just start doing, start somewhere. It's all about Jesus. If you want to see that God is powerful, get busy with gospel proclamation. Because here's what Paul says. If you preach it and anyone, anyone believes it, you will witness the power of God to save. So you speak the gospel to your brother and sister here who's going through a difficult time or has got some difficult issue, and you start saying, well, let's talk about Jesus. What is the gospel of Jesus? And you start saying that, and you see the, the darkness begin to lift. You just watch the power of God for salvation. This happens all the time. I, I see this happening. I hear about this happening. And every time, it is strengthening. It is encouraging. Paul says, if anyone believes it, the power of God unto salvation. I just want to, like, start, to, anyone believes it. Just start talking to anybody. I don't know if it counts if you talk to your dog, but try it. I, that's a good, I, whatever. Start proclaiming the gospel. Now, now, here's the problem. The word salvation gives us quite a bit of difficulty if, when you hear that word, And I'm just guessing this is what many of you do because I know it's what I tend to do. If you hear the word salvation and you are thinking in terms of only final salvation, that is something to be experienced only after death or even at final resurrection, then I think you're going to miss what Paul is seeing and saying. Salvation in the Bible makes itself known and felt in the present. Even if it's true that its full force will not be known, made known to us until the future. To be saved should not make us think first about going to heaven when we die. You go to the funeral and we say, well, they're in heaven. They believe in Jesus. They're in heaven. To be saved should not make you think that way first. It should definitely not make you think first about escaping hell, final judgment, and the wrath of God. Now, to be sure, the gospel promises this and not less than this. So, yes, the gospel is good news when a grieving spouse is wondering what is the state of my dead husband or wife. Yes, we have something to say. Yes, salvation includes that, but it includes so much more than that. Oh. Perhaps way too many of us are ashamed of the gospel and of preaching the gospel because we do not know how much more the gospel promises to those who believe it. It's got, a much, it's got so much more than this. So when we talk about God's power to save, I'm not ashamed of proclaiming the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation. When we talk about God's power to save, here's what we're talking about. This is what we believe. We are talking about what God has done to restore fallen humanity and the entire fallen cosmos back to its original glory. No more than that, into a better glory. It's something which is future, yes. But this salvation reflects its splendor back into the present of those who are to share it. So if you are saved, if you are saved, then you should see glimpses of future glory in everyday life. Glimpses which do not disappoint, but encourage further gospel proclamation, belief, and application. Salvation is not a mere transaction. Occurring between you and God. It is the participation. In what God has already brought about. In the gospel of Jesus. You're still not with me. To be saved is not a ticket to possess. That gets you a ride from earth into heaven. It is a reality you live in now. Even as you await. For heaven to arrive. In its fullness on earth. If you say. I am saved, and I ask, how do you know? Then you ought not to say, because I'm going to heaven when I die. The correct answer would be something more akin to, because because my entire life is transformed by who Jesus is and what he has done. The gospel you believe, the gospel that saves you, is the power of God. So if you've encountered this power, you can't help but be transformed. All areas of your life take on new meaning. In what way? How should we be different? The answer is the righteousness of God. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Verse 17 says, because in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. You got it? End of sermon. What is the righteousness of God? The fra- here is a phrase that you're going to find five times in the Book of Romans and only two other times in the rest of the New Testament, and it, it's not so easy to comprehend. This is what I meant earlier when I say there's new horizons opening up for me. It's not like it's not like get rid of everything you believe before, but 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 add to it, supplement it, let new things come into place that help you see more clearly. All that the gospel is promising to us. The word righteousness itself is sometimes translated in English as justice. But these two English words are not usually thought of the same thing. We don't usually think righteousness, justice as the same thing. We, we tend to think of justice as fairness, impartiality, or recompense. While righteous we usually use to describe good moral conduct. So when we encounter a phrase like the righteousness of God, are we to think of how God relates to us, that is, justly, or are, are we to think how we relate to God, that is, righteously? Does the gospel bring us into a saving encounter with God because in the gospel we see how God acts in justice toward us, or because in the gospel we see how we come to be righteous before him? You see the difference? If you don't, just read the manuscript. Because I, I want you to get it. We're going to figure this out. We don't know yet if we're reading wrong. What, what does he mean by the righteousness of God? Or, or you might just say, does it even matter? It matters, church. Oh, this matters. Oh, I'm, I've entitled this whole sermon series, Real Hope for the Righteousness of God. So we've got to know what does this mean? And if you say it doesn't matter, then let me at least say this. This is the kind of question that has split Roman Catholics and Protestants for more than 500 years. So it matters a lot. And I hope you don't just say, well, I'm a Protestant, so I guess that's the one I believe. Like, let's find out. So here's an important point here to see. In the Old Testament, the righteousness of God is almost an equivalent expression for the salvation of God. For example, Isaiah 46:13, God says, I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off and my salvation will not delay. So it seems best then to understand in Romans 117, this phrase is referring not to what happens to us in the gospel, but what empowers the gospel and ensures it will have its effect. It is in the gospel that God shows his own righteousness, his own justice, his own power. How do we know God is great? In the gospel. How do we know that God is just? Because some of you don't think he is. You're going through something right now. You're like, God is not fair. How do we know? In the gospel. How do we know that God is powerful? In the gospel. Keeping in mind that the gospel is about his son, We understand that it is in what God has done for us, in the death and resurrection of Jesus, that we can see God's righteousness revealed. We can actually see how God is great, just, and powerful. And if you can see that, you will have all the motivation you need to preach the gospel. Now, I'm way past time. Some of you know that. I can see your faces. I get it. So I'm going to end it right here. But listen to this. Here's what he says in verse 17. The key term is faith. God's righteousness is revealed in the gospel from faith for faith. Again, this sounds so complex, so we need the book rest of Romans to figure this out. It's not clear at this point precisely what Paul means with this expression. By the way, I looked in the commentaries. There's at least a dozen different possibilities for what Paul means when he says from faith for faith. So we're not solving that now. But notice at least this. Faith is necessary in order to see God's righteousness. Paul is citing from Habakkuk 2, seven, where it says, As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And faith will become the central topic of chapter 4. So just for now, note the connection. Faith is meant to bring between righteousness and life. It is by faith that the righteous live. Who are the righteous? We'll find out. But the result of righteousness, the goal that it's aiming for, The whole promise of the gospel is life, not death. So at the funeral, when you see the body, the gospel promise is not, well, consolation prize. You're in heaven, disembodied. And so many Christians say that. It's not the promise. The promise is that death will be defeated. This body will be raised. Death will reign no more, all by faith in the righteousness of God. Let's pray together.